Before I uh, begin the sermon this morning, I wanted to do something that's really, really important. I want to give a shout out to a very special group of people uh, here at Crossview Church, and that's the kids, the kids at Crossview Church. Whether you are here in the sanctuary with us, in the worship center worshiping with us, or whether you're worshiping online, uh, I just want to thank and acknowledge the kids. We've always said at Crossview Church that Crossview Church isn't a church where the, this, what's happening in here with the adults is the church and everything else is sub that, but we've really battled against that and said, you know, when it comes to uh, kids and when it comes to students, that they're part of Crossview Church. Crossview Church is, is all of that, that we want all of that involved. And this has been a really, really weird time. Uh, we haven't been able to have our Sunday school the way we normally do, and, and uh, kids have been engaging through our Jesus Storybook Bible Times online on Facebook. We've gotten some feedback on that. I encourage you, if you parents, if you haven't checked that out, to do that. Uh, it shows up on our Facebook page. It's a great way to engage. Uh, but also, one of the things that surprised me is, is kids are engaging uh, here in the worship service and online. And that, uh, they, obviously, I know they can't get everything, uh, but they get little pieces and they share them with me, and it's really, really cool. Um, I've had uh, lots of kids from Crossview uh, email me or encourage me, and they send me pictures. I got a picture once of Gage getting ready to have breakfast and worship, which was really cool. I got a picture from uh, my friend Eli last week. Eli was watching online and sent me this picture waving hi to Pastor Dan as he gets up. And, and so, hi, Eli, if you're doing that again. Uh, I had Madeline, who was a seven-year-old, who uh, his grandma and grandpa's my neighbor, and she came running over when she saw me, and she wanted to make a point to tell me how great Crossview Church is as a seven-year-old, and her four-year-old brother Liam was there, and Liam wanted to make sure I got some sliced apples out of his lunch, so he made sure I got sliced apples. How cool is that? But we have amazing kids at Crossview Church, and I just want to say to all the kids in the worship center here and online that you are so incredibly special. And you are special because of the way God made you, and we love you at Crossview Church, and Jesus loves you. Never, ever, ever forget that, all right? So I thought what a cool way, before I get in the sermon, to uh, just give a shout out and say we love kids and all that you're doing and, and hanging in there during this time, that I thought it'd be really cool if we did an air high five with all the kids here in the worship center, as well as all the kids online. So if you're a kid or you're a kid at heart, you know, some of you really want to do this too, and that's okay, you can. Uh, at the count of three, we're going to do an air high five, right? So one, two, three. Boom! Way to go. Way to go across you kids. We're so glad you're here and part of what's going on. So, so cool. And parents, thank you for helping make that happen. This is really, really important. All right, so I grew up going to the movie theater and watching Indiana Jones movies, all right? Indiana, how many of you watched Indiana Jones movies in the theater? All right, there you go, shout out, very good. And one of the things, I remember just getting caught up and brought into the story and I couldn't get out of it. And, and I saw, I was watching an Indiana Jones movie on TV recently, just was flipping through and I saw it and I watched a little bit of it. And I realized one of the reasons I got so caught up in it is it's pretty much just a chase, from the beginning all the way to the end. It's one big chase with all these little chases in between. But one of the things I noticed about Indiana Jones in these movies is he'd be, there would be a chase going on, someone's chasing him, and he'd get into a spot where it looks like, okay, there's no way he's getting out of this. He had three or four different groups hunting him down. He gets into this room. He's backed into a corner. It's like, this is it. This is where the movie ends because there's no way he's getting out of this. And then, boom, he'd get out of it, right? It just would happen. Have you ever felt backed into a corner by all sorts of things happening around you? There's a church 
that existed in ancient Rome in a city called Colossae. And they felt backed in a corner. They felt like there's three major lies that were coming at them. And they felt the pressure of these three lies. People kept coming in and telling them these things that weren't true. Or they kept hearing about these things in their culture that would really cause them to try to think through, is this true or not? And the pastor of that church was a person named Epaphras. Epaphras was the pastor of this church in Colossae. And he was worried about his church. You know, pastors worry about their churches. They get all worked up about their churches. And they wonder, man, are they staying close to Christ? Paul even said that he talks about all his anxiety. That's the actual word he uses, his anxiety for all the churches. And so this pastor, Epaphras, saw these threats coming in. And he was worried about his church. And so he wrote the Apostle Paul. And he said, here's what's happening. I got these threats going on. And the Apostle Paul couldn't come and visit because he was on house arrest, which is kind of like being in jail. He was chained to a Roman guard, so he couldn't come. But he wrote a letter to address these threats that were going on in this church. And that letter is the book of Colossians. It's in our Bible. That's what he wrote to address these things. And as we dive into this, we're going to see those threats uh, be addressed by the Apostle Paul. And have you ever felt like you're backed into a corner? See, this can happen to us as well. Have you ever made a decision like you want to go deeper in your relationship with Jesus, but it feels like everything's against you? It feels like there's all these ideas and doubts that are pulling away at you, all these things that are pulling you away from him. You see, this can happen to us as well, and God's Word has help for us. So I encourage you to open your Bible to Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 2, where we're going to look at a triple threat that was coming at this church. And in these verses, in 16 to 23 of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul goes after these three threats. We see the three specific lies that are coming at this church in this region, and he's going to go after them and, and bring truth. And so I believe it'll help us as well as we dive in. So open your Bible or turn on your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. You can check it out in the Church Center app as well. If you're new to the Bible, Colossians is towards the back. It's right after Ephesians and Philippians. If you hit First or Second Timothy, you've gone too far, come back to it. So Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to see these three false realities that attacked the church. And when we look at this, you might look at these things and think, huh, some of that happens today. And you're absolutely right. Because the Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun. That there's always familiar things that are false that are coming at us. So we're going to look at this. I want to start by giving a little context. So This letter was written to the Church of Colossae, and this is kind of a map of the Roman Empire at the time. You can see in the upper right, that's kind of blown up uh, from where uh, it is on the Mediterranean Sea, and Colossae is up there in the upper right. There's also a town there called Laodicea, and in chapter 4 of the book of Colossians, Paul says, hey, take this letter, go to the Church of Laodicea and read it there as well. And in fact, Bible scholars believe this letter was uh, spread around several churches in this area because in this area, the churches were under threat. They had the threat of these three false ideas that were coming at them, and we want to look at those one by one. So let's check out Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 16. It says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. The very first threat that Paul attacks in verses 16 and 17 is the threat of what's called legalism, the threat of legalism. Legalism says you grow spiritually by following a bunch of rules. That's it. 
that what you do to grow spiritually is all about rule following. You follow the rule, you follow the rule, you follow the rule. That's what makes you grow as a follower of God, that you grow through rule following. And that's a threat to the true gospel. You see, the legalists, the people who were coming to this church in Colossae and telling them uh, this was a group of people called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers said, it's not just Jesus Christ, but it's Jesus plus other things. You have to add all these other rules you have to follow. If you really want to follow God, you really want to know God, you've got to follow all these rules. And some of the characteristics and things that they would teach is that first you have to conform to these rules, this code. And when you do, then you exalt yourself because you've made a great achievement. You pat yourself on the back and you say, look how great and spiritual I am. It always involved rules that were created by human beings. There's obviously commands in the Bible that we have to follow, but these rules were kind of placed on top of those. They were what we call extra biblical. They were added to it, and you had to follow it, and they kind of set these rules. And they said, if if you want to really follow God, you have to follow the rules here, but there's also these other set of rules you have to make sure you follow. They portrayed God as a judge who the minute you broke one of those rules was going to come and judge you and fall down on you. And they were always enforced through guilt and shame. They mixed Old Testament law, which is true and good, with New Testament gospel, and they pitted them against one another. Versus the true gospel takes and says Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law. It keeps it all together and lined together. They would pit them one against each other. And they kept telling this church, you need to behave and follow these special rules if you want to get close to God. And Paul's response to that is something totally different. In this text, he kind of says the substance is Christ. He points people back to Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, people longed for the time when Messiah would come and he would change how we relate to God. No longer was God about following the law and Torah. To follow God meant now you follow a person, and that's Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law and the Torah. So it shifted when Christ came, and Paul said, remember, the substance is Christ. He kind of reminded them that the gospel of grace says that we are loved by God, not because we are good and we follow all these rules, but we are loved because God is good. We are loved because he is good. We're not loved by God because we are good. The basis of our love and acceptance with God isn't because we can follow these rules. We are loved by God because of who he is, because he is good. And he countered that with this truth. This truth is uh, pervasive in churches all over today. They take rules and they say, if you really want to be accepted here, if you really want to be accepted by God, you have to follow all these rules that are sometimes written and unwritten. And they hold these rules and the motivation to hold people in rules is fear because they feel like they have to control it and make sure that everybody is doing what they're supposed to do. And they set up all these systems to make sure people follow, and they're contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't say you can sin and do whatever you want. That's not the gospel at all. The gospel says that when we sin, we go to our Savior and we ask forgiveness. And yes, we live a holy life. Yes, we obey the commands in the Scripture, but we do it because of the love that God has brought to our hearts. And when we give our lives to him, he gives us the Holy Spirit and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do those things and to obey. We don't obey to try to get points with God. We obey because we're saturated and amazed the love of God. It's the response of who he is that causes us to do those things. It's called gospel-empowered holiness. So that was threat number one. The second threat that Paul wants to address is mysticism. 
In mysticism, it says you grow by seeking these special spiritual experiences. Look at verses 18 and 19. He addresses mysticism specifically in these two verses. Let no one condemn you by delighting in aesthetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. See, the mystics that were pushing this, they thought that they were special. They thought they they were super spiritual. And Paul pushes back and says, actually, they're unspiritual. He, the one who believes this stuff, doesn't hold on to the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body is nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons and grows with growth from God. You see, these mysticists believe that you grow by seeking spiritual experiences, that that's what you do. And they are pushed by this group called the Gnostics. The Gnostics. The Gnostics, actually all three of these have Gnostic influence, but the Gnostics were really big on this idea that there's a spiritual realm that we can't see, and we tap into that, and everything else is evil. And that the true person who's truly spiritual has a gateway and access into this spiritual realm. They believe that spiritual experiences have the highest authority, even that over what's written in the Bible. They believe that all matter was evil. So if you can see and touch and feel something, anything you can see and touch and feel as evil, there's this spiritual realm where there's all good. And the battle of life was to move from the reality that we see around us to this unseen spiritual realm. They worshiped angels in the spiritual realm and held them in a place higher than God. And they believed that they were the mediators. They served between these two worlds, that they had these supernatural mystic experiences and therefore that ordained them to be the mediators between a holy God and sinful human race. And they placed themselves in that spot. It was a lie. It's a sham. It's a falsehood. It was seeking its way into this church. They were marked by a false humility. They looked really, really godly. People were impressed with how they talked, and they tell stories of these encounters of the spiritual life that people can't see, and people thought that was cool, and they're like, ooh, and they're drawn into that, and they would bait them into this. And they, by drawing them in, they damaged the church of Jesus Christ because they took their eyes of the church off of Christ and onto these mystic experiences that were highly exalted and it became like that was better than God himself. And they kept telling this church, you need to have special knowledge. And Paul's response was that these people are going to steal something precious from you. They're going to steal your freedom in Jesus Christ. His response was that it's only in Jesus Christ is true knowledge found. Only in Jesus Christ is true knowledge found. Look at verse 19. He puts them back and says he, and when he says he there in verse 19, he's referring to these mystic people. Uh, He doesn't hold on to the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body is nourished. See, Jesus Christ infuses his church with life, infuses his church with power, infuses his church with love. And when you replace the head of the church with something other than Jesus, you're going to get falsehoods coming out. You're going to get lies coming out. Jesus is the only one who is the head of his church and brings the truth of his church. You see, this kind of thing can happen in churches today as well. Because what we're really good at is we take a little bit of truth and we twist it just a little bit. And when you twist a little bit of truth, truth, it can lead to a huge, huge lie. And so we have to be very, very careful 
that we don't seek spiritual experiences above Jesus. Spiritual experiences happen. I really believe that, that God uses and he comes and he touches us and, and, and he will meet us where we're at and we can sense God's presence and worship and sense God's presence in our time in the Bible and see things and we really feel it, that he's there sometimes and we can, not all the time, but sometimes we get that and I think those are real, but we have to be very careful we don't exalt that above Jesus Christ himself. And we have to be very careful that we're not people who seek after an experience more so than we're seeking after Christ. Because if we do, we can easily become prideful and divisive. So the third threat that Paul addresses is asceticism. It's a third threat that he comes, and this says you grow by beating yourself into submission, by forcing your will to be a good person. You grow in this way. Look at verses 20 and 23. He says, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as though you belong to the world? Why do you submit to the regulations? This is his counter. These are what the people are saying. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish and being used up. They're things of this earth that aren't going to be powerful. They're human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. He's saying these practices, though they look really good, they're not going to help you become more like Jesus. They look really good and they sound right. Don't do this, don't do that, have all these things. But that is not how you become more like Jesus Christ. You don't beat yourself into submission or force your will into becoming more like Jesus. Paul's response is that those won't work. The false teachers pushing this are called dualists. And what the dualists believed was that the spirit inside of us is the good part. So you see a little bit like the Gnostics, that the body is the bad part, that the spirit is trapped in this evil body. And when we die, finally the spirit is released and can become good and the body part is done away with. But that's not the gospel at all. That is not Christianity. Paul says their methods don't work. You're not going to become more like Jesus by beating your body into submission. And contrary to this, the body, the spirit, the soul, the mind, were all created by God. And they're all good. When God created the body, the soul, the spirit, the mind, and creation in Genesis 1, he said, it is good. And sin entered the world and brought corruption and marred them. But it doesn't mean that there's evil in those things that cannot be redeemed by God. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he saved us body, soul, mind, and spirit. And so that when he comes again, we are going to get a glorified body, a new body, a body that's going to reflect God. So Paul's response to the gospel is when we are saved, when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we then worship God in body, mind, and spirit, all three. What they're telling you, he said, is not true. Your body isn't evil, and you're not going to become more like Jesus by restrictive practices. This can easily happen to us in churches today as well. We take a little bit of truth, we twist it to have control, and we put it all forward. Sometimes churches reflect these three things and they come off as saying, God is good, you're bad, try harder. God is good, you're bad, try harder. Have you ever been to that church? God is good, you're bad, try That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God is good and we have fallen into sin, but he has done something amazing to help us become more like Christ and it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you give your life to him, he loves you so much that he enters in and he transforms and he frees you. That's the gospel. 
So what does Paul do? What is the solution for all these three falsehoods? What's amazing is the solution to the falsehoods isn't set up so we need a a truth for this one, a truth for that one, a truth for this one. It's the same truth that covers all three. And it's so true for us today. When we hear false thoughts and false realities, the same exact antidote is is the solution to all these truths. And the truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person, the work of Jesus Christ. That is what disarms all false realities out there. That's what disarms all the falsehoods that we hear that come at us. All three of these churches were taking threats, and all three of the threats are taken out by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Legalism says that is taken out because Jesus is the one who forgives us and sets us free. Mysticism is taken out because Jesus is the fullness of God, and there's no other experience than being with him, and he is the only mediator between God in man. Asceticism is taken out because Jesus unshackles the sin that holds us away and keeps us in prison and sets us free so that we can please God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single falsehood, every single false narrative, every single false truth can be combated by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you notice, we're in the middle of chapter 2, and all the way up to here, Paul's talking all about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's putting him up there and exalting Christ because Christ is the answer to all this. You become obsessed with Jesus and you're set free from these falsehoods. Now, some of you are sitting here right now or some of you are online right now and you're saying, Dan, that's great, but I don't know if you notice, we don't live in the Roman Empire anymore. I don't know if you notice, but this is stuff that is all about then and none of this stuff happens today. And my comment to you would be, are you really sure that's true? Are you really sure that's true? Because I believe in that there's nuances of these three things, but even if it's not a carbon copy of these three things, there are false realities that invade our world as Christians every single moment of the day. There are falsehoods out there that speak lies into us, that try to get us off target all the time. And the solution is the same. It's Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled by thinking that because this is something that was addressed in a church that was happening 2,000 plus years ago, that we are free and don't battle those false realities today. It's just not true. We battle false realities all the time. And I'm going to step step, uh, into a controversial one right now, just to give you an illustration of how we battle into false realities and false narratives all the time. There's an idea out there that many Christians buy into hook, line, and sinker during this time. And the idea is that the outcome of this presidential election is going to change everything. Whatever happens, whether it's my candidate, whether my candidate wins or my candidate loses, everything is going to change and everything is going to be effective. In one sense, that's true. I get it. I know what you're saying. But in a total another sense, that is a total falsehood. It's a total falsehood that Christians have bought into. If you are getting your emotional well-being, your emotional hope, your emotional peace, and you're basing that on what's going to happen in the presidential election, let me tell you something. That's a sin. It's called idolatry. It means you are taking something that only God can give you, and you are ascribing something, you're putting a God in the place of God himself, and that is the outcome of a presidential election. 
Now, I'm not saying don't get involved. I'm not saying engage in your right to vote and then be involved in the, the citizenship of the United States of America. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is if you're banking on the fact that this presidential election is going to change everything fundamentally for everything in the world, you have a really small view of God. And you need to repent. You need to ask forgiveness. And if you're thinking of that, and you're thinking that this election is going to change everything, it's okay. You're not a horrible person. It's so easy to get caught up in that. That's why we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just go to him and say, Jesus, I got so caught up in this election. Will you please forgive me? He's so right. You alone are God. Will you help me see that and understand and allow him to transform your heart? That's the gospel. That's grace. It's a wonderful thing. But don't think for a moment that this election changes the fact that Jesus Christ is in control of everything in this universe. And guess what? On November 4th, Jesus Christ is going to be in control of everything in this universe. Don't think for a moment that this election is going to take one ounce away from his rule, from his reign, from his decisions, from his will. An earthly election in the United States of America cannot change the will and the purpose of God Almighty. He has it figured out, and all things are held in his hand. And no matter what happens in this election, if you are a Christian, you are set in the hand of Almighty God, and he has you, and all of his promises are still real, and all of his peace still exists, and all of his love and forgiveness and grace is still there, no matter what happens in the world around us. So don't fall into the lie. Don't fall into the false reality that this is going to change fundamentally everything for the people of God. It won't, because Jesus is our king. Jesus is the one who's ruling and reigning. There are so many other false realities out there that we so easily get tripped up by. Maybe for you, it's running to a computer screen and getting gratification. Maybe for you, it's finding out juicy gossip about people and spreading it to other people. And you get something from that. Maybe it's making sure that you are affirmed and that who you are is put out front so you can get all these accolades because you get something from that. There's so many false realities that bombard us. And if that's you, it's okay. Just go to Jesus and repent and say, God, forgive me for that. There's another false reality that I think hits the Christian church and holds it into bondage. And that's this, that if you go to Jesus with your sin, he's going to sit there and go, Ah, you again and this sin again. What are we going to do about you? There's this idea out there that God is sick of us when we come to him with our sin, that he's sick of us, he's fed up with us, he doesn't want to hear from us. That's a lie from the pit of hell. When you go before Jesus with your sin, no matter how many times you've done it, no matter how many times you're broken and you have a true heart that wants to repent and receive forgiveness, Jesus doesn't put off by that. He's not tired of that. He loves that. That gives him joy. He says, that's why I came. I came here to go to the cross to forgive you and save you from your sin. So for crying out loud, when you sin and you're broken, don't have this false idea that I don't want you to come to me to receive life, to receive forgiveness, to receive wholeness, to receive grace. That's what I came for. That's my mission. That's why I love you. So when you fall into these things, run to the throne of Christ. Run to the cross and ask him for your forgiveness. And he will give it to you with joy. He will give it to you with love. Do you realize how much Jesus loves it when his children come to them imperfect 
and broken by their sin and want to repent? It's who he is. It's what he's about. So Paul says it's so critical to stay in Christ. Two practices to stay in Christ and then we're done. The first one is this, that we have to be strong in the truth and worship Jesus. We have to be strong in the truth and worship Jesus. When false realities come, they attack two things. That's their strategy. Their strategy is to attack two things. First, they neglect or reject the truth of God in the Bible, or they diminish the person of Jesus Christ. That's the strategy of every falsehood out there. Either they neglect or reject the truth of the Bible, or they diminish the person of Jesus Christ. They will distract you from a life saturated in God's word. They will distract you from a life that gives worship, honor, and obedience to Jesus. Transformation and true freedom come from a fountain of Bible saturation and worship to Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Transformation and true freedom come from a fountain of Bible saturation and worship to our Lord Jesus Christ. Falsehoods cannot stand in that environment. They get crumbled down. The second thing we have to do is refuse all substitutes. Refuse all substitutes. False teachers try to replace Bible and worship with the latest and greatest, and you gotta be careful and be aware. If someone talks about new revelations they find in scripture, or new interpretations, or new sources of truth, be on your guard, be very, very careful. When they point to their own experiences and opinions more so than what's in this book, and they teach you from their own experiences and opinions instead of teaching you what's in this book, be very, very careful. If that ever happens across your church, run and find a different church that's going to teach you this book. Because this is the source of truth. This is what keeps us away from those falsehoods. If there ever was a time for the church of Jesus Christ to re-engage through the truth of his word and worship of Jesus, this is it. I have a privilege and honor of serving as a chaplain for the United States Secret Service. And one of the things the Secret Service does beyond protecting the president, they also uh, enforce identity crime and they look out for counterfeit money. In fact, the counterfeit money was the first mission the Secret Service had. And I went out to Washington, D.C., and I had training, and they laid these bills in front of us. They said, tell us which ones are fake and which ones are real. This is their job. They have to figure out which ones are fake and which ones are real. Can you tell? Out of these, which ones are fake and which ones are real? I'll give you a hint. The two, well, I won't give you a hint. I'll tell you the deal. The two in the middle are real. The two on the outside are fake. If you look at the top one, look at the eyebrows of Ben Franklin compared to the bottom one. It looks weird, doesn't it? You know why? Because that top one's a $5 bill converted into a $100 bill. So there's, the Secret Service could never train agents to find every counterfeit out there because there's too many and they're created by the moment. So you know how they train their agents? They train them in the truth. They train them to look at what does true currency look like? What does it feel like? What does it look like? What does it smell like? How is it made? They saturate them in what true currency looks like so when a counterfeit comes, they see it a mile away. We have to do the same exact thing because the counterfeit lies that come at us, they're too nuanced and they come too often and they get recreated too many ways. And the way we will combat false realities is when we saturate ourselves in the truth and we can see these counterfeits coming a mile away because of what it says in this book. We have to become Bible-saturated people. Our goal is to live for God alone and accept no substitutes and to exalt Jesus Christ and be gospel-believing people. So let's ask God for his help as we do that mission. Please bow your heads with me as I pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you that you haven't left us in this crazy world without an anchor. You've given us the anchor of your word and the character of your personhood. And God, I just ask that you would unite our hearts as your people to anchor into your truth and anchor into your son, Jesus, and not be so easily duped by all the things that come at us. And Father, in those areas where we have bought into the lie, those areas where we've fallen and we've accepted the false reality, hook, line, and sinker, will you forgive us? Let us experience your grace. Let us experience gospel love, gospel truth, and gospel transformation in those places. I thank you for these moments that we have to worship you and to hear from your word. God, let us never take them for granted. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we worship.